2: this is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our cultural assumptions, like that it's crazy to wake up at midnight so you can be among the first people to do the day's Wordle, when in fact, it's totally sane to do that, but it's saner still, like new levels of clarity will emerge in your existence. When you go to sleep at 10, set your alarm to do Wordle at midnight, of course, when it drops, go back to sleep, and then here's the kicker, Wake up at 3 a.m. when the New York Times spelling bee drops. And then when you hit genius level at like 3.30 a.m., go back to sleep and wake up at 7.30 and you have the whole day ahead of you to get from genius to queen bee. And I mean also do whatever else you do in a day. One cultural creed I'll never question is that study put out by Big Crossword 25 years ago or so about how word games help your brain, because I have to be spared this one fantasy, or else what's to become of all my achievements at the mini, the B, Wordle, Scramble, Scrabble, Lexilis, which used to be Scrabulous. Does seriously anyone remember Scrabulous, which was dramatically removed from Facebook in 2008, when evidently social media was just so perfect that the Scrabulous name change on Facebook made headlines for at least three days? Okay, I keep thinking about all the articles of faith, including that thing about word games helping your brain and keeping you young, that I get from sciencey headlines, and they just stay in my head forever— I never reread the studies, and they end up underlying my views about the world and my life until I get the truth from like Aubrey Gordon or Michael Hobbes on maintenance phase. I mean, I want to believe that word games are good for you, so I'm not open to skepticism there. But I've had so many crazy breakthroughs listening to Gordon and Hobbes. So many things I've been doing wrong, like it turns out. According to these young people, this is a lot to take in, so I'm going to go slow. You don't have to turn your whole one chance on earth into organ failure, self-loathing, and howling madness so you don't gain 10 pounds. It turns out you can just go up a jean size instead of dying of shame, speed, and laxatives. This is a very radical thought, so keep them coming, you young people. My guest today is a friend of mine, and I don't just mean that in a friend-of-the-pod kind of way. Echo plays chess against my son, which is incredibly nice of him, and he almost always wins. But once he lost, and there's actually some Queen's Gambit chess decorum issues I don't totally understand here about who can challenge whom next, but chess isn't Echo's only forte. Echo Yanka is a professor of law at Cardozo Law School, where his research is on criminal law, election law, and police brutality. He also serves on the board of directors of the Innocence Project, which was founded at Cordozo in 1992 to exonerate individuals who've been wrongly convicted by using DNA testing and working to reform the criminal justice system. Echo is going to talk with me today about criminal justice reform, the Innocence Project's recent work, and the subject of innocence itself. A quick warning to listeners. This week's show talks about incidences of violence and sexual assaults, So please take care while listening. The Innocence Project. It's not called the criminal justice reform DNA something processing thing. It has an almost holy name, innocence. Yeah. And you've had an occasion to confront what innocence might be, not just in the abstract, but where the rubber hits the road. Um, and that seems to me immensely interesting about the project and about your angle on the project.
3: It's mind blowing. I mean, so on one hand, of course, it's called the Innocence Project because the name is powerful and because it reverberates. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a party that could just say, "Well, sure, it's a great brand," but of course, that's just a cynical view. I mean, the question is, why does the name reverberate? And the name reverberates because it is stunning. I mean, I have been in courtrooms the day somebody's released after a decade. 15 years in prison yeah. for a crime they didn't commit. And the name reverberates because it does stun us. It does shake us to the core to know that the machinery of the state could come swoop somebody up, usually somebody powerless, somebody poor, almost mm-hmm. you know, overwhelmingly people of color. And some cops somewhere decided, oh, you're close enough, right? Mm-hmm. There may be a few cases where it was really tragic where Everybody did their best work and an innocent person was still convicted. But that's not actually the middle, the, the, the grist of these cases. The mm-hmm. grist of these cases are indifference, poverty, cynicism, and a machine that just sweeps people up because it couldn't be bothered. To your point, when you see somebody released and you realize the whole time they were innocent, it, it, it does have a kind of reverberation. The kind of reverberation you'd feel if you had a holy um, conversion. You're you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right about that.
2: You're a very philosophical person, Echo. So what drew you to the law instead of, say, philosophy?
3: Thinking hard about criminal theory just was always meaningful to me. Jurisprudence is philosophy with bayonets at the end of it, right? So Mm. at the end of the day, you're testing these theories Against the hard reality that the law can impose on people obligations quite against their will. And not just besides all of that, but of course, there's just the practical reality that, you know, it's something that has this huge impact in the world. I care a lot about it. Its impact is not randomly distributed, it focuses on people of color, it focuses on black men in particular. And so the ability to say something to that just um, was attractive. There is this moment where especially judges with any decency take a moment to really apologize on behalf of the state, right? That they say, you know, we can't give you these years back, but we want to let you know how wronged you were. And we are so thrilled to release you. Um, And and it's so often to the arms of a mother who's believed in their son for so, so long or their daughter for so, so long. Sometimes not, right? Because sometimes you hear the story of somebody who couldn't go to their mom's funeral because they were in prison. Mm -hmm.
2: So tell me about a specific case.
3: So I won't use names, but one case I remember a gentleman... You know, we would probably today diagnose him as somewhat intellectually disabled, right? I mean, mm-hmm. these things are on a spectrum, but somewhat intellectually disabled. I think he recognizes himself as somewhat intellectually disabled. He's also, um, even from a very young age, he was physically disabled in, in in ways that let him go out in the world, but in ways that, you know, can, it slowed him down some. But in any case, the reason I bring this all up is because... Um, Here's a guy who goes to a party with friends miles and miles and miles and miles away from where a crime was committed. A brutal crime is committed. A young woman is is beaten and raped. And among the things the eyewitnesses see is a man pick this young woman up and carry her away from the scene where she's eventually found. Here are the two most obvious facts. Huge numbers of eyewitnesses that say he wasn't there because right, he's at this party miles and miles and miles away. Um, so
2: they, they, they confirm the alibi.
3: Utterly confirm you know, the alibi. Right? Yeah. It's only that he's being interviewed when he's himself a man with intellectual disabilities that it's very easy for him to get confused. And so he's not even confessing. He's, he tells his story over and over and over. But you know every time the police suggest another, another detail, it slowly becomes incorporated in his story. And if you mm-hmm. met him, you'd understand why. I mean, he's a kind of person who you could manipulate his stories quite easily mm-hmm. and frankly I should rush to say if you study criminal procedure it turns out you can do this to anybody but certainly if somebody's intellectually disabled it's exceedingly easy to do but here's the second feature that really mattered in that case he was physically unable to carry a young woman
2: mm-hmm.
3: without being too specific his, his body just wouldn't he's not somebody who could carry a young woman so the fact that the story that the police decided upon was so improbable, so unlikely, so impossible, actually, in the end, nobody cared. You know, here's this poor black guy, hadn't been in any sort of interesting trouble with the police, but he was just available. He was just mm-hmm. available and, and mm. just got swept up.
2: So I know the Innocence Project sought a reinvestigation for this case. How is, how is he now?
3: Um, he's out of prison, very, Mm -hmm. very happy uh, with his family, extended family, his nephews and nieces bring him great, great joy. Physically, things are really quite, different. you know, a a decade in in prison when you have physical handicaps that are not being medically attended to have worn on his body. I don't want to make it uh, Pollyannish, but he, he has a real resilience, which is just so admirable. And he's a lovely kind of just lovely person.
2: I DM'd you recently when there was a high-profile exoneree who worked with the Innocence Project. And I think I said, and I know this goes to my own issues, but if I were imprisoned for something, I might, might start to think it was my fault. I think about the men who are physically abused by police and the kind of he's no angel reaction in the media in response to police violence committed against Black men. And if I'm in that position, something bad happens to me, I might instantly go in my head to I'm no angel. Right And I, I wondered if you put a person like this in prison year in and year out, are they slowly developing the feeling they might deserve it? Or are they able, night after night to stay true to their actual experience and their kind yeah. of intrinsic goodness?
3: Yeah. When you meet exonery after exonery, the thing that we are all just endlessly stunned by is their unwavering belief in their innocence, their unwavering commitment and belief. I did not do this, and the world will one day know, right? Mm. Not just that I will know, but mm. the world will one day know. And, and, you know, again, a lot of the stories, we don't want to be Pollyannish. There are a lot of dark, dark moments. One incredible common thread uh, of exoneree after exoneree is how they treasured the support of a few particular people, whether it be a spouse or often a mother, who mm-hmm. just did not let them slip into despair, Um That is not to, or if we put it more truthfully, who would not let them stay in despair, right? Mm. Because there are going to be moments of despair. Um, And I find those stories extraordinary. I would say the huge percentage of exonerees come out with this kind of resilience and strength and belief and lack of bitterness, which forever stuns me, just utterly stuns me. Um, That is not to say that's everybody. There are some people who are understandably, deeply embittered. When you weren't there for your brother's funeral or your mom's funeral, when Mm -hmm. you have missed, you know, the sort of irreplaceable part of being a father. You know, if you reintroduce yourself to your child in their 20s, right, you're just not going to be the father they ever knew in a sense. Um, Yeah. Some people just can't let that go. I don't know that I could, but... The stunning thing is how many exoneries can and do. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. I once heard an exoneree talk about the joy of walking on grass, and it really uh. brings it home to you, right? You just think, my God. There's a book out there your, your listeners might want to pick up called, I think it's called Picking Cotton. And it's mm. by a white woman who finds herself in just about the most horrible situation you can. She's being attacked, and she's being raped. And she decides only there's only one way she's gonna get through this. If she survives, she's going to memorize the face of her attacker and make sure he's caught. So, I mean, you can't can you imagine the wherewithal? You are undergoing what is just the most horrific attack, and all she decides is, I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to remember this man's face. And so she does. She imprints his face. On, on her mind. Mm-hmm. Her attacker is later arrested, brought in for identification. So, because she has spent her whole time focused mm-hmm. on this person's face, she picks her attacker. She knows who it is, right? This is the one thing that was going to get her through, the one thing that was going to help her live. So, she picks her attacker, and of course he denies it. He says, it just wasn't me. This wasn't me. But she's certain. I mean, she is just, this was her mission. And so when she's asked in the courtroom, is your attacker in the courtroom today? And if Hmm. he is, can you point him out? It's that incredibly powerful moment in a rape trial where she says, yes, he is. And he's standing over there. She points to him Mm -hmm. and he's convicted and he keeps denying it. And she is frankly just infuriated on top of having raped her, having shattered her life and her security, that he doesn't have the moral decency to admit his guilt and stand up for his crime. Flash forward years mm. later mm. we finally have DNA evidence DNA evidence of course, is one of the few forms of s- forensic evidence that was not invented in a courtroom for a courtroom. It was invented by scientists for science and it has the most I mean, mm. you know, I mean I, your your listeners know what DNA evidence now it's incredibly powerful and incredibly certain we can just know so her rape kit is tested and she is So happy Mm -hmm. because, in fact, she can finally put to sword his lying that he did not rape her. And the rape kit comes back, and it's not him. And she is stunned. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is not just, she is shaken to her core. She now realizes that she helped convict this innocent man um, and did not listen to any of it. In, In fact, heard all of his protestations with, you know, something bordering on not just fury, but contempt. And so she helped convict this black man of raping her when it was not at all him. And she was utterly convinced. There there had been zero doubt in her mind. She's a white woman, right, trying to identify this black man, a bit of identification, which all our social science says is very difficult, right? People do not do a good job of identifying people across races, in particular when they don't know people, right, if it's not somebody you know. One of the stunning things about their story is that she after getting over it was just so shaken the core she sought his forgiveness, he was exonerated. Um, They managed to reconcile, he forgave her and they ended up writing this book together about her experience, the problems with certainty, with convicting somebody and they actually now speak together about supporting the Innocence Project among other things And, and they've managed to find a peace together. It's really quite remarkable.
2: That is astonishing. And we're in the midst of something similar, right? With the Alice Sebald case. Alice Sebald is the author of Lovely Bones and the author of of a memoir of her rape called Lucky. She had identified her rapist as someone named Anthony Broadwater. Um, I think she also identified him in a lineup, but at at least on appearance only. And he has recently been cleared. And so a lot of her identity and her career even have been predicated on a case that has this misidentification at the center. She's expressed, you know, just abject despair at at the discovery that she did this. On the other hand, you know, you talked a little bit about some kind of restitution or reparations. I mean, what what would that even look like?
3: Yeah, I you know one of the things think about when you finish school, right? Then you know I went on to more school because I'm an academic. Uh, I met my wife at graduate school. We didn't start dating for years and years and years. Uh, started a job, changed jobs, took an academic position, took another academic position, married my wife, had a kid, had my. Now think of all those years gone, right? I mean that's the thing I want people to get uh-huh. when they think about the Innocence Project think about what it meant for you to build your life from your 20s to your 40s or whatever Mm -hmm. it is you have now. I know you've had some remarkable, um, wonderful personal events. We've talked about your son, you know, raising your son and him playing chess. All that stuff is what's taken away from you. It's Mm -hmm. not just an abstract Mm -hmm. number. You know, we say, oh, 10 years, 15 years. People need to think about what it means to have those years gone, what it means to not have had a son or not to have played a role in your son's life, to not have met that person you were gonna marry, to not go through a marriage, a divorce, a remarriage. all these things that are the difficulties, and this is just the stuff that makes a life. And for the exonerated, it's just taken away from them, just Mm -hmm. gone, just like Mm -hmm. that. And so I never want it to become an abstraction in that sense.
2: If you're interested in picking up the book Echo mentioned, it's called Picking Cotton, Our Memoir of Injustice and Redemption. And it's by Ronald Cotton, Jennifer Thompson Canino, and Aaron Torneo. Coming up after the break, now that you know why The Innocence Project does what it does, we try to figure out how it does that and especially what has changed in the last three decades.
1: Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.
2: Welcome back to This is Critical. My guest today is Echo Yanka, a law professor and board member at The Innocence Project. So I, I want to get to the evolution of The Innocence Project's work. Barry Sheck was one of the lawyers who started it in the early 90s during the kind of ascendancy of DNA evidence. Sheck was also famously part of O.J. Simpson's defense team, and one of the first things he did with DNA evidence is help O.J. Simpson avoid getting convicted of murder by questioning the validity of the DNA evidence. So, obviously, science can cut both ways. Tell us about DNA evidence and the evolution of how it's been used in criminal trials.
3: I mean, on the OJ thing, the one thing I can say is if OJ Simpson's criminal trial stands for anything positive, it stands for a commitment to the idea that one really can't be guilty unless you're proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, You know, I am not somebody Mm. who in the popular culture has any uh, interest in defending OJ Simpson's behavior and, you know, to my mind, probable crime. But that's the idea, right? Probable crime is not enough to put people away. Mm -hmm. So if it stands for one good thing, that's what it stands for. And, you know, I say that understanding that there's a family that's forever lost a daughter. Let's talk about what the Innocence Project does and, and, and the techniques. One of the best ways I can describe this is by talking about when DNA and when not, right? So... You know, we, we've spoken a little bit about some of the really difficult cases where people were trying their best to identify their attacker. Um, and it was only through DNA evidence that we understood with 100% certainty that this is not the person, for example, who raped you. Um, but one of the things that meant is that once we knew that those cases were, so to speak, false IDs or false positives in every other sense, mm. the Innocence Project gave us the power to go back and figure out what things were going wrong. And, by the way, what things were going wrong in cases where we might not have DNA, right? For example, once we understood that um, no matter how certain people were in their identification, that actually does not track accuracy, right? Somebody who was doing their best to remember this attacker's face, they thought this was the only thing that will get me through. And who would have sworn on the Bible that this is the person who attacked me, Mm. that their certainty just didn't track whether or not this was actually the attacker. So, too, the Innocence Project helped put a lie to what was a lot of really sham science out there. Mm. So, for example, there's still people, one of the things that the Innocence Project's really proud of, national experts in forensics and the forensic science academies have now utterly repudiated the idea that bite mark evidence is telling, right? So, there are a bunch of people, there's still a bunch of people out there who go around saying, this person, when they're being attacked, bit, This uh, victim here, I took a mold of their teeth, and now we know that this perpetrator did it. And, you know, so what Mm. you had was, okay, this person's presenting themselves as a forensic expert, so Jamal Smith committed the crime. But once the DNA showed that Jamal Smith didn't commit the crime, we came to understand this bite mark evidence is just... Garbage.
2: It's amazing. I, 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 you heard it here first, guys. I had no idea. I thought there was some the, some truth to that. That's great. It sounds so, of you course. know, because people use dental records for this and that. So that sounds convincing of to course. a person.
3: Yeah. Look, if you're really interesting, if you're on a jury and you don't know anything about this, and this person has, you know, a bunch of yeah, uh, degrees from some orthopedic uh, school, and they're telling you, and they're looking at you, and they're saying, "I can tell with hundred percent certainty that this is this person's bite." My point, though, is one of the most powerful things that the Innocence Project has done is use the DNA evidence as a platform to help fix and disprove other forms of forensic evidence that were leading to false convictions. And other, form, mm. other police techniques like manipulative investigations, sleep deprivation, uh, bad IDs and bad lineups, um, mm-hmm. You know, now pushing for police recordings right? Of all interrogations. Uh, Let me pick up on that really quickly. So if I pick up Virginia and I say, Virginia, what do you know about this crime? Mm -hmm. And and Virginia says, well, I I don't know anything about this crime. And then I interview you for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And slowly, and by the way, even if I'm not meaning to do it, I might be slipping in details about the crime. Well, did you see Mm -hmm. this thing happen? Did you? And slowly, you know, now 14 hours later, Vidina says, well maybe I was there and this is what happened. And you tell us. Oh, I, I story. would I
2: would say that at the top. Right. Because I always think I'm guilty, so it takes nothing to go. make me say, like, you know, come to think of it, I definitely did it. Come to think of anyway. it. Anyway.
3: You, you definitely <laughs> yeah. did it. But but here's yeah. the problem. When you first confess, you're gonna tell me you did it in uh, Connecticut. But yeah. I, but let me remind you, weren't you actually in Harlem? And weren't you you know, oh, and yeah. and didn't you have the blue car? And except? now here's the thing. If we wait until hour 14 and I hit the button record, now we have this story of Virginia saying, when I was in Harlem wearing the blue shirt in the blue car, this is what happened, but I didn't pull the trigger. And now, of course, the prosecutor's going to say, you know she was there. You know Mm. she did it. Do you really believe she didn't pull the trigger? If we would have recorded you from the very first minute where we started interrogating you, Right, The jury would know that you actually had no idea where the crime was committed. You had no idea there was a blue car mm-hmm. at all. All of this is evidence that you were slowly fed over 11 hours of interrogation. And it's only because we record the last hour that it sounds like you knew all this stuff and you must be guilty. Right? Mm-hmm. The Innocence Project now has expanded its work. We now take on non-DNA evidence where we have very compelling evidence of innocence, even if it's not DNA. It's a smaller part of our portfolio, but it stems from all our work over many years having used DNA to find out where there are other mm. repetitive problematic weaknesses and, and false forensic indications that systematically lead to, to wrongful convictions.
2: It's so interesting because it like reveals the layers of cultural assumptions and cultural biases and cultural stories that we tell ourselves in favor of look the guy just wasn't there. The guy you know? just
3: wasn't there and look, and, <laughs> and I get many prosecutors get frustrated because they worry that the CSI effect has the opposite effect, right? That uh, now people just expect there to always be perfect right, you know, kind of yeah. incontrovertible yeah. evidence. But what's also true and what's just as powerful is that this DNA evidence has made it clear to us how many times we just ran roughshod over, uh, over mm. presumed innocent, over beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point, it's not just that we're invested in the stories. It's that we only want to see those stories. We want them to be buttoned up. We want them to look very mm-hmm. elegant. And frankly, the Innocence Project stops us from looking away at all the other stories where ah. none of this happened, where the person was swept along We're too tempted to either shut our eyes or mutter darkly to ourselves, he must have done something.
2: Have there been any times when the actual perpetrator came forward and exonerated the help to exonerate the person serving time for it? I mean, that's the, absolutely. the thing that I always think about in these 11 hour interrogations and forged evidence and like racist crusades is that somebody else actually did it.
3: That's absolutely right. So, the, uh, you know, among the things we're often proud of is and this was true, by the way, in in the case of the Central Park jogger, as you know, we often forget. It is true that five young black men were sent to jail for a crime they didn't commit. It's also true that a rapist was allowed to continue to be loose on the streets of New York, right? And Mm -hmm. he raped Mm -hmm. other people after that crime. Mm -hmm. And it was only when he was in prison and eventually found that we know who actually attacked, uh, who actually was attacking and raping young women in New York. Some of the saddest cases are when we do get people who the actual perpetrator you know, all too often, now that they've been caught for another crime, says, actually, I'm the one who committed the crime. And you have prosecutors who are so invested in protecting their reputation that they just, they ignore the person. Uh-huh. The worst cases are cases of prosecutor misconduct, where the prosecutor, frankly, encouraged an informant to, you know, just say whatever we need to convict this guy, you know. The prosecutor wants to be a senator, right? So he'll be damned yeah. if he goes back yeah. and repairs those cases. And so another kind of thing that I think the Innocence Project can be rightfully proud of is the growth of conviction integrity units, which are slowly cropping mm. up around the country, where they're not aggressive enough, they're not funded enough, they're not big enough, but where prosecutors have to say, it is not our job to protect every, every conviction. It is not our job to just keep mm. putting people away in jail. Mm-hmm. It is a miscarriage of justice if an innocent person is sitting in jail... Your aspirations to be governor, be damned.
2: Okay, so far we've been talking about what happens when someone's wrongfully convicted and how the Innocence Project helps to stop that. But I still want to know, why does this keep happening? We get into that after the break.
0: Want to make Mom's Day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.
1: If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is,
2: this is critical. My guest today is Echo Yanka, a law professor and board member of the Innocence Project. Earlier, Echo argued that indifference and laziness are big reasons why people are falsely convicted. But racism drives this too. And I wanted to know how that works.
3: Yeah, look, there's just no question. You know, one of the things that the Innocence Project has shown us in just brutal detail is that the way in which false convictions are distributed hugely track race and poverty, right? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just a huge number of people with whom we're not interested in investing. The kinds of promises that we make when we build a criminal justice system, right, a criminal law system that says beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, we're committed to that because when we think about a particular individual, ourselves, we think, yeah, of course, nobody should be locked up unless we know beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed this crime. Do we afford that commitment to the huge sweep of young black people out there? No. There we start doing this other kind of fuzzy mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah, I mean, okay, maybe, maybe the evidence in this particular one is, is off. But, you know, they probably did something somewhere. And it's that kind of conglomeration, right? It's that kind of melding in our, in our imagination of mm-hmm. black men and criminality. That is the heart, you know, the, just the kind of base idea that, you know, black men are criminals. Now, you know, somebody's gonna rush to say, well, I don't think black men are, cri- or I don't think, you know, here's this black man who's not a criminal. You know, look at, you're a fancy law professor. Nobody thinks you're a criminal. And what I wanna say is, well, look, what you mean is that we have a baseline idea in our society, a default that black men are criminal. And of course, it's true that some people can opt out of that default, right? If you wear nice enough clothes or live in a nice enough neighborhood or speak with perfect diction, you can signal I am not part of that fallen caste over there that you assume. But the point is I have to do that, right? I have to signal um, that I'm not part of that fallen caste. If we allow our criminal law to treat an entire cast of people like that, then it's not surprising that we're just willing to accept the sweep of people going along, that some people will be swept along whether or not they're innocent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very abstract way of putting it. But it, you know, the, the brute way of putting it is we just don't care enough about Black people to remain committed to our, our principles that you have to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt.
2: I had Maggie Nelson um, on this show not long ago. I think her book on freedom you'd really like. She introduced me to the phrase carceral feminism. Mm. You ever heard of, I heard have, of yeah, this? Yes, yeah. I have. Yeah. You know, a feminist, just for listeners, a feminist who really believes that patriarchal oppression can only be addressed with more imprisonment and yeah. punishment of, in particular, males. Yes. And I think that that is a weak link in... The criminal justice reform story. Because just as people have come to terms with more experience with sexual assault and violence, there's not a a good way to talk about reform that doesn't start with the incarceration of lots more men. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the same time, we have criminal we have criminal justice reform that's talking about shortening sentences and talking about letting out nonviolent offenders and also discovering how much interrogation, corruption, and police Corruption incarcerates the wrong person. So you have grave suspicions about the prison system and criminal justice, and a kind of uh, out for blood feeling yeah. among my sisters, sister feminists. Yeah. So tell me about this collision um, and what might be done to get everyone on the same side.
3: You know, I always tell my students. If these problems weren't difficult, they wouldn't be worth your talents, right? And, and these problems are difficult. The indictment of or feminism goes hand in hand with the question, for example, of um, abolitionism, right? So, if you think of a healthy, well-working state, if you think of your dream kind of polity, right? Mm-hmm. When you think of its streets, its cafes, is it near nature? Is it an urban? Se- you know, is it? Uh, a sort of wonderful college town? Is it a, a New York type metropolis? Is it near? Where are the police in your imagination? Hmm. Right? For most of us, the police just don't come up, or if they do, they're really, really, really far back. And what does that tell us? What that tells us is among the things we ought to be imagining when we're thinking of how to make a society healthy, it should be well recognized that police may or may not be necessary. I don't count myself as a full abolitionist.
2: You mean a prison abolitionist, a police abolitionist.
3: A prison or police abolitionist, right? Yep, got it. I think it's not surprising that we've had something like some kind of punishment and in and norm enforcement for much of human history. Though I rush to say nothing like modern policing, which is really quite new. But what is surely true is that when we think of a healthy, flourishing place, we don't think it's held together by police right we think it's we think it's successful because it, it has all the other ingredients to be successful mm-hmm. I, I, I find it mysterious when people say oh, it's all about the thin blue line. I think mm-hmm. if you're a thin blue line person you mm-hmm. should really be you know, an abolitionist. You should really be a Black Lives Matter movement person. Why? Because if you think the only thing holding society together is a thin blue line of armed men who wander around, you should want to get away from that as quickly as possible. (laughs) I mean, that should be a clarion call to fix that, not a kind of resignation that that's the way it is and ought to be. That's crazy, right? If you really think your society is held together only because, you know, the famous quote... um, because dangerous men um uh, dangerous men ride you know ride at night or something like this um,
2: is this the like you can't handle the truth it's only yeah, because we're yeah, up here ex- exactly. yeah or oh, slash the yeah, the thin blue I hadn't thought of it that way right we are still in this, like, nonstop animal brawl, and it's only because people, you know, wear blue that we're not always at each other's throats. I mean, that is, you're right. It's an astonishing vision, and we just accept it.
3: It's a terrible, you know, the, the, the old line is, you know, people sleep peacefully in their beds at night only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their uh-huh. behalf. Ah, right. If you really think that's the only way you can sleep (laughs) at night, you have a very limited uh, vision of what what we can do. That's why I start with the long story of let's think about what a healthy society would be and how we would right-size police in that society. I end by saying, look, I I do think there are forms of violence people visit upon us that demand repudiation and punishment. Mm -hmm. If you attack somebody, you hurt somebody, you kill somebody, you rape somebody, I think we have no choice but to say... This is not just discouraged. This is inaccessible in our society, and you will be punished. And so, to the extent that my abolitionist friends critique that I'm not, in that sense, an abolitionist, they are right. Hmm.
2: So, but I do like that. I I like the way the language has evolved around these things because um, there's, you know, it's just been a really interesting accelerant for um, progressive. Politics, yes, I think, yeah. Um, and, and very demanding to yes. so it's, it's, it's sort of think through intellectually yes. demanding. So, sorry, carry on.
3: No, no, you're absolutely right. no. But my, but even as I'm occasionally, um, I feel the dagger of the critique from my even more progressive friends. I completely agree with them that you know uh, criminal law at best is the last version of healing and stitching together something bad that's happened in our society, so a, a violation of another person's standing as our civic equal, somebody's right to be able to, you know, walk among us without fear and and attack. Of course, they are right that if we limit ourselves to the idea that the only way we can address these problems is yet more police and punishment, well, you know, All we have is hundreds and hundreds of years of evidence that that's not going to solve the problem. And and there, they're certainly right. When I'm not being an academic, occasionally, I I participate in community things. I remember once I was in a meeting in my old neighborhood, um, and it was one of these meetings where a police officer was there, community kind of uh, re-engagement meeting. Police officers were there. And a oh, wait,
2: old, sorry, Old Neighborhood in... Lower East
3: Side. North? I was in, Lower, in East Lower East Side. In Lower East yeah. Side. Got it. And a grandmother was there, and they were complaining about uh, a broken door where the kids were gathering, and they were smoking pot and misbehaving, but in the ways that teenagers often do, right? In ways that were disturbing but not violent or deeply problematic. And this grandmother kind of wanted her grandson to behave and come in, and he wouldn't behave, and she was raising him alone, which is part of the difficulty, Right many of the problems she was facing aren't policing problems they're problems of poverty they're problems of family structure they're problems of infrastructure right why doesn't the door work Mm -hmm. anyway so at some point she gets so frustrated and her and her grandson are having really nothing more than a family tiff and she calls the police and the police officer then ends up arresting this kid and so you Mm -hmm. get this weird moment where The police officer's there. She wants the police officer to essentially make the grandson behave. The grandson refuses to behave. Now he's infuriated. The police officer's there. The police officer starts to arrest him. She, of course, gets infuriated. She loses, because this is not what she wanted, right? Mm -mm. And so now she's screaming at the police officer. I mean, the whole thing is just a melee. And so she relates this story to the police captain. And the police captain essentially says, well, what did you want us to do? We're the police, right? And you could sense his frustration. He was sort of like, I mean, what am I supposed to do? You called me here. You and your grandson seem to be having a, some sort of fight, so I did, right. I did police-like things.
2: You know, it's like, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Exactly. If all you have is a set of handcuffs and a gun on your belt, then those things are going to get used. That's
3: exactly right. Now, great police officers actually learn that much of their job is diffusing these situations without, but... Right. Making arrests. Yeah, but here they all were. Um, and she was saying, this is not what I wanted, and the captain's kind of like, well, you called the police. To your point... You know, you think of these cases where they are interpersonal conflicts or even real problems or even real violence, and somebody wants help. This kind of ever-present overhanging carcerality means that there are moments where people can't even use infrastructure that they need, right? Because it will all land with so much force, so much more force than they want. And that freezes things, too.
2: That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at thiscriticalpod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer with help this week from Corinne Wallace. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical.
0: So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.
1: If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support any time you don't have to hide how you feel